This morning we are in Genesis chapter 4. It's been a couple of weeks since we were here in Genesis. But we're going to read chapter 4 together. And then we're going to see if we can unpack God's message for us from these verses. Would you join me in standing as we honor God's Word together? Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden." Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahuel, and Mahuel fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal who was the father of those who dwell in tents and livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all his instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lemex is seventy-sevenfold. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. 
Father, we thank you for the rain today that you have sent to replenish this earth, for the ways that you work in our lives, for the blessings, the many blessings that we have, even, Lord, as we live in this world that is characterized unavoidable, that we would be changed both today and, Lord, for all of eternity because of this encounter with you. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. In this chapter, there is clearly a struggle that's going on. It reminds me a little bit, though it's unpacked a little bit more in depth, of Romans chapter 7, where Paul describes the struggle inside that goes on between the flesh and the spirit. And we see that portrayed here right out of the gate. Uh, We've said that Genesis is a book of beginnings. We see the beginning of creation. We see the beginning of humanity. We see the beginning of marriage, beginning of family. We see the beginning of sin. And we're going to see the beginnings of murder. We'll see the first murder here in this passage of of Scripture. And we also have seen the beginning of the gospel as God promises to redeem His people, His fallen people, His rebellious people from the path that they've chosen to draw them back to Himself because that's what's best for them. And this is what He set out to do and He will do it. He's a covenant God. As we look at this chapter, it's a little bit clunky, a little bit awkward in how we unpack it. But I want to share with you basically four points from the text. First of all, I think in the first four verses here, we see a hopeful anticipation beyond the garden. I remind you, Adam and Eve sinned, tragically sinned, disobeyed God, broke God's rule, and that brought the judgment of God immediately as God approached them and confronted them in their sin. It's a pretty stunning uh, scene that's, that's uh, outlaid there for us. And in the aftermath of that, that, even as God is pronouncing judgment upon His people that He's created, He gives them hope. In chapter 3, verse 15, He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, seeking, speaking to the enemy, and between your offspring or your seed, and her offspring and seed. You see, I think Satan thought that he'd won the battle that day, that he had forever brought humanity over to his side, to his team, to rebel and engage in mutiny against God. But God said, I'm not going to allow it to happen that easily. I'm going to put enmity between you, between the seed of Satan, the enemy, and between humanity and this gospel that I'm going to raise up, there's going to be a future hope, a redemption for all of humanity. I'm going to put enmity between you while I work out my plan between your seed and her seed, and he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. We see here in this chapter, Eve says right out of the gate, I've begotten a man with the help of the Lord. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I often wonder what Eve must have thought. Cain was the first baby born. She must have thought what's going on. You ladies who have given birth to children, I know that that's one of the uh, most difficult things done uh, physiologically by a human being. I've had people tell me, because I've had kidney stones, they'll say, well, you know, having a kidney stone is far worse than birthing a baby. I said, I don't believe that, number one. And number two, I would never admit that in the company of another woman who has given birth to children. But I wonder, what must have gone through her mind as this began to happen (laughs) to her, as God brought forth what she calls a man, a man-child, with the help of the Lord. This has come from the Lord. I think that there is a glimmer of hope here, that this is the promised one that God spoke of in verse 15 of chapter 3, that here's the one, the one that's coming to crush serpent and set us free from this bondage that we're in. Will he be that one to fulfill the promise and crush the serpent's head? I like to speculate about it, but there's nothing here to imply that anything I've said can be taken for anything more than my speculations. Nothing tells us that Abel was born second or that he was born immediately after Cain. We assume that because we go from Cain right to Abel, but it's very conceivable, very possible that there were other children born between them. That Abel could have come along a much longer time, uh, in a much longer time frame than just immediately. We're thinking in our, the context and not in this ancient context where they lived for hundreds of years. What we do know is that Abel followed a different path from Cain. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 4 says this. It says, by faith... Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. The birth of Cain and Abel must have fueled hope that God was going to honor that promise to overcome the serpent. And probably, if you're, if you're Adam and Eve and you're expecting that God's going to honor that promise and he's going to do it soon, maybe in the back of your mind you think that when this happens, everything's going to return to the way it was. The garden will be restored and we'll be allowed back in the garden and everything will be just like it was in the beginning. They could not have known in their wildest imaginations that we would still be seeing the after effects playing out even today, thousands of years later. So there's a hopeful expectation beyond the garden. But then we see in verses 5 through 7, we see the problem of sin manifested in a rather gruesome way. We know God prescribed a particular way to approach him because he makes a judgment between Abel and Cain as they approach him. God isn't one to do things without informing ahead of time, so we know that he has prescribed a proper way if you want to approach me. You see, things had changed. Where they used to have the privilege of walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden, unfettered, unhindered, 
This intimate communion with God. Sin had changed all of that. But God put in place a way. He said, you can't just take for granted access to my presence. Things things must be acknowledged. Your sin must be acknowledged. And here's how that will occur. Offerings are going to be required if you want to approach me. Now, we see in the text that Abel was a keeper of sheep, that Cain was a farmer, a worker of the ground. And we should not read anything into this distinction. doesn't mean that Abel was better because of his vocation than Cain. And some even think that his sacrifice was accepted because it was a sacrifice of a lamb or sheep. And we see that connection all through the scripture, right? An animal sacrifice, that God received it because it was that. And Cain brought works of his own hands, tilling the ground, working the ground. But, but we can't lean into that because we see in the Old Testament that there were offerings of sacrifice and there were also offerings of grain and other things that came from produce, from the ground. The law included both offerings of sacrifice and first fruits. So the problem is not that Cain brought an offering from the fruit of the ground. The problem here is that Cain came with an unacceptable attitude. I told you last week, or three weeks ago, I guess, that sin is not a thing. Sin is not an act. We see, some, uh, we see consequences of sin. We see the fruits of sin, but sin is a disposition. Sin is an attitude. Sin is rebellion. And then the acts of sin are the fruits of what resides within us. God spoke to Cain. He said, if you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, if you do as I told you, would you not be accepted? And if you do not well, if you don't do what I ask you, if you rebel against me, sin is crouching at the door. If you bear resentment toward me, God says, sin is lurking ready to pounce like a hungry lion. The implication is that Cain knew the right approach but disobeyed. Again, Hebrews 11.4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Abel acted obediently in faith, taking God at his word, obeying his instruction. Cain rejected that. Cain thought he knew better. Cain thought he could persuade God to receive a different offering. 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, again, we read a reference to Cain. We are encouraged there by John that we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? John asks, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So Cain brought a minimal offering. He was merely trying to satisfy a requirement. God said, we have to bring an offering. Okay, great. I'm not bringing the first fruits. Why would he make that decision? Because he had an attitude that I'm going to save the first fruits for me. I did all the work. I'm the one that produced this. I'll save these for me. He's short-circuiting God. Not obeying God. He was not worshiping God. Not honoring God. 
His fallen nature becomes clearer still as he reacts to being confronted by God. How did he react? The scripture says he became angry. Sin, crouching at the door. He literally became very hot. He burned with anger. His face fell. His whole countenance was turned downward in displeasure. God's counsel to him is direct. If you do what is right, it will be accepted. Your countenance will be uplifted. You'll be joyful if you do what is right. This is the way we're wired. This is the way God has built us. But if you are resentful, if you're rebellious, the outworking of sin is lurking. It is poised to pounce. Either follow Yahweh's way or follow the way of sin. This is the choice. You must rule over it, God tells him. This is the challenge for all of us, even those of us who follow Christ while living in this broken world. If you continue to resent God's righteous requirements, you become easy prey for sin. Jude calls this attitude the way of Cain. In Jude verse 11, woe to them. Who's them? He's talking to false teachers. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain for Balaam's era and perished in Korah's rebellion. Now, what does this mean? Alan Ross offers us some insight into this. This is what he says. The plot of the story develops from the Lord's rejection of Cain and his offering. Cain became angry, rejected the Lord's advice, murdered his brother, denied the knowledge and responsibility for his crime, and then protested for the punishment for it. The way of Cain, he says, then is unbelief that may manifest itself in envy of God's dealing with the righteous, in murderous acts, in denial of responsibility of one's brother, and his refusal to accept the punishment. Cain's the glaring example of what sin produces in humanity. A fallen heart, a resentful countenance that says, righteousness has no claim on me. Holiness, I do not have to pay attention to that. Who is God and why does he think that he can interject himself into my life? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin's not a thing. It's not an act. It's an attitude that despises God's holiness. We all know this is true. We can't deny it. Watch a little one. We have one in our house right now. Watch a child, those little innocent babies when they're born that we all think are just so perfect and they can never do anything wrong. And to see the bipolar activity between the seeds of goodness in them and the seeds of evil. We call it a dark heart, a heart that's been away from God. This fallen nature, this bent towards sin and away from God always increases. It doesn't decrease, does it? It doesn't fade. It intensifies. It multiplies. It deepens and spreads. And then we see the outworking of sin and that that outworking of sin is eminent 
and it's explosive. Sin is crouching at the door. Beginning with verse 8, we see this explosion of sin. Mind you, we were just in chapter 3. Everything was beautiful. Everything was good by God's own announcement. It was all good. And here in chapter 4, we see that literally all hell has burst forth upon the landscape of creation. Sin is crouching at the door. Stand around a corner. Happens all the time. I've seen it. I saw it this week. I see it all the time, you know. Someone's coming down the hall. Someone sees them coming. They hide up against the wall. And what do they do? They jump out and scare them out of their wits. And then we laugh and we think it's funny. And and it is. But on a more serious nature, this is what this attitude of hostility toward what God demands does for us. The enemy is always lurking, always waiting, looking for us for that one fleeting thought that's drawn toward sin. That one fleeting thought of resentment against God's holiness. And he pounces. Cain's resentment erupted into a raging wildfire of destruction. What was smoldering under the surface exploded into stunning violence, and we see the first murder. He resented God, and he had a cold jealousy for his brother. Why? 1 John 3, 12. He hated his brother's righteousness. He hated the fact that God approved of Abel's offering. It goes on all the time, doesn't it? When you were in school, didn't you hear it? If you tried to do what was right, and someone was always there going, oh, you goody two-shoes. Trying to be the teacher's pet. Where's that come from? That's coming from the enemy. The enemy seeking to draw, to push us into a state of rebellion. Drawing out that spirit of resentment. Cain's action was premeditated. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Some of the ancient translations state this this way. This is what it says. Let us go out to the field. Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. It was premeditated. And God knew immediately of Cain's sin. It was not hidden from him. Where is Abel, your brother? And then he, how does he respond? He's angry, but now he lies. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Why are you asking me? Why don't you, 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 don't you know all things? What have you done? Second lie. Silence. Seven times in this text, Abel is referred to as Cain's brother. Not once is Cain referred to as Abel's brother. Cain not only had rejected his relationship with God, abandoned that, resented that, he'd rejected his brotherly relationship with Abel.
God curses Cain. The ground will no longer produce for you. God pronounces that he will be a wanderer. He'll have no peace. He'll be unsettled. Unsettled. No peace. How does that work out for a farmer? How's being a nomad work for being a farmer? God struck him at all of his comforts and all of his securities. My punishment's too great. It's a heavy weight on me. Well, others will bring vengeance upon me. I'm going to have to deal with all kinds of people or I'm going to be a marked man. And God says, no, I will mark you and set you apart. And this will be a warning to others to leave you alone because your justice belongs to me. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. Sad, one of the saddest statements in all of Scripture. And Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. Nod means unsettled. No peace. No peace. No comfort. The first murder. Then we see a society enveloped in the way of Cain. Swallowed up by the way of Cain. Cain's son, Enoch, is born and he built a city. Cain built a city and named it after his son. You know, cities offer a great deal of promise. They are, we have a love-hate relationship with them, right? It's a place of employment, of, of uh, education, of uh, enjoyment, entertainment. All kinds of things are available and accessible in the city, but at the same time it brings with it Difficulties, great difficulties as we try to live together as broken and flawed vessels. I wonder, I've been giving this a lot of thought, and I wonder if Eden was sort of city-like. You know, I said it, we confused the garden with Eden. Garden and Eden were not synonymous. The garden was in Eden, is what the scripture says. So I wonder if Eden was a city a metropolis that God prepared. And in that metropolis, he put the garden. I don't know, just speculating. Because I'm thinking about how it all concludes. If you get to Revelation, we see that at the end, God makes a city, a new Jerusalem, where his people will be forever and ever and ever. I don't know, just thinking. When Cain established the city, there was no regard for God, no thought about God. He had no designs upon making this a city committed and honoring to God, but to himself and his own legacy. I'll name it after my son. Isn't this so often the case with us humans? Ego and arrogance appears in so many forms, and certainly this is one. But it gets worse. Lamech, the fifth generation in Cain's line, took two wives. He introduced polygamy to this world. This was not God's pattern. A man shall leave parents and cling to the wife, his wife, and the two, the two shall become one. Not multiple wives. Can you, can you become one with multiple wives? Wives, can you become one with multiple husbands? No, there's division, isn't there? There's disunity. There's always going to be disunity. 
Why did he do this? So I think probably unbridled lust would be at the root of it. But I think, I think Lamech's trying to multiply faster. He thinks if I have more wives, well, look, we have the responsibility to multiply, fill the earth, build cities. I've built one. If I have more wives, I can have more children faster and I can get to the end. I'm going to chase this thing fast with my head aflame. What was man's assignment that was given from God? It was much different, wasn't it? Let me remind us. First chapter, verse 28, God says to man, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created man in his image to be a ruler, to be a king upon this creation on God's behalf, to be God's representative, to be God's agent. Ancient kings were expected to be devoted to the welfare of their subjects, especially the poorest and weakest members of society. And by upholding the divine principles of law and justice, rulers promoted peace and prosperity for their subjects. In similar fashion, mankind is here commissioned to rule nature as a benevolent king, acting as God's representative over them and therefore treating them as God who created them, treats them. This chapter reveals just the antithesis of this assignment, does it not? This is what sin has done. No longer are we functioning according to God's designs, God's pattern, but we're doing things according to our own corrupt hearts and nature. Sin's made a mess of what was once perfect and glorious. Man was instructed to multiply and fill creation with God-worshippers, What we see is murder, brother upon brother, lawlessness and lovelessness. We see polygamy, not harmony, unity, but disunity and hostility. We see governance over creation that is based in intimidation and domination. Lamech says, hey, you do something to me, I'm coming for you with everything I've got, and you're going to rue the day that you crossed me. We see it still today, do we not? Human arrogance, corruption, greed, selfish passions that characterize society all because of sin. Lamech is the prototypical man of flesh and corruption. He'd fit in well in our world today. Seeking to multiply his own devilish methods, not God's. Everything looks pretty bleak, pretty hopeless. Creation's overrun by corruption. But Cain's way will not prevail ultimately. The fourth thing I want to show you today is there's a better way. There's God's way. And that's what he tells us here at the end. Remember who's writing this. Moses is writing this to the children of Israel. Probably as they're out in the wilderness wanderings waiting to go into the promised land. And Moses reminding his people, this is how it all began. This this is the, the seeds of how everything began. But what you need to see is while this world is in disarray and while evil and corruption is running rampant, you need to understand that your God is a covenant God. He doesn't depend upon the ways of man. Cain had killed the line of God in Abel, or so he thought. 
And God said, you can't stop me. I'm a covenant God. What I have prophesied and promised will come to pass. No one can stop it. And so he gave Adam and Eve another son, Seth, who is appointed. That's his name, the appointed one who will stand in the place of Abel, a substitute for the dead Abel. And Seth will continue the promised line that Cain tried to end. The offspring, the word offspring, seed, is the same one used here that's used in Genesis 3, 15. Eve may have hoped that Cain's birth brought the promised fulfillment. She may have thought Abel's was, but Seth certainly was. And it points us to Christ. As we read here, we see Seth had a son named Enosh. Enosh is included along with Seth in the genealogy of Christ in Luke chapter 3. This is the true line of hope. Decadence, decadence rages across the landscape of God's once perfect creation. And now hope dawns anew in God's coming deliverer and redeemer. One who will be perfect. Where Adam failed, one who will succeed one who will settle all accounts with God. One who will be the last Adam where the first Adam failed. He will reclaim, restore all who believe the gospel and put their trust in him. He will make them new again as God has always intended that they be. I love this final statement. Though it is controversial, at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. I'm a simple fellow. And so when I read that, this is what I think. I think they began to have clarity about the gospel. I think chapter 3, verse 15, might be a little bit unclear to Eve and Adam. Yes, God has clearly promised hope. What does he mean? He's going to crush the head of Satan. And Satan's going to nip at the heel of the seed, I, that's kind of confusing. But I think as this has begun to unfold and Seth has appeared, that God has begun to make clear, make the connection that there's coming a redeemer. There's coming another Adam. There's coming one who is going to set back in place what has been lost by sin. And they began to embrace the gospel hope and praise God for it. They recognized his greatness, his grace, and his glory. And by calling upon God's name, the name of the Lord, we acknowledge our irrepressible sin nature. We confess that we deserve God's judgment and his justice. We deserve to be forever banished from God's presence like Cain. But through this promised Redeemer, we'll be renewed, reclaimed, adopted into the family of God. Will you call on Him today? Have you called upon Him? Are you following Him? Is that where your trust lies or are you trusting in the things of this world? Turn from sin and self and trust in Christ and Christ alone today. He is the fulfillment of this promise. He is our hope, our only hope. And Father, we thank you and bless you today because you are worthy, worthy to be praised and honored.
We thank you for the gift that is ours in Christ. How you have made, how you have made your purposes fulfilled, brought to fruition. Lord, your restoration of that which has fallen. It's amazing to us. I pray that in these moments that you might pierce our hearts with this truth. And that we might be enthralled, Lord, at your wisdom, at your greatness, at your glory. And that it might be evident in our lives to all that we encounter. That we might indeed bear the image of Christ in all that we do and say. For your honor and for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.